0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, one of your hosts here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined... By my favorite would-be assassin, Anika Chapin, Goodspeed Musicals, (laughs) other artistic associate, and resident dramaturg. Hi, Anika.
1: Hi, Michael.
0: This is a crazy experience because for the first time in the 15-month history of this podcast, we are together and in person recording. We
1: really are. You can't see it, but I just... I just reached out my arm and touched Michael. Flair. She's
0: poking me. This is exciting. We yep. can actually weirdly talk over each other, and maybe it won't be weird audio-wise. Yeah, we can interact. We can talk. This is really wild. It's a game changer, team. Yeah,
1: it for, really is
0: for all uh, listeners of the program. This is really this is a moment.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. a moment,
0: and we're so pleased to be sponsored by Community Health Center, who are sponsoring all of our summer programming this year. Um, they've really done a ton in the Connecticut community to get, um, shots in arms and things. And we're very, very grateful to them for their support of Goodspeed and this program. But Anika, why don't you remind us what the clue is for the show we'll be putting in the spotlight this episode?
1: Well, I remember this one clearly because the clue was that this is my favorite show. And for those who know me even a little bit, um, who have ever taken a class with me, listened to me talk about pretty much anything, um, you will probably know that that means we are talking about Stephen Sondheim and John Wideman's brilliant masterpiece, messy, interesting, weird, totally unique, deeply uh, special and important assassins.
0: What a lead up to that title. (laughs) I know.
1: Well, I really... I really was, well, when I'm thinking, like, first of all, I'm kind of terrified to do this episode because assassins loom so large in, like, my personal mythology and, and what I care about, and I've talked a lot about it, I've written about it professionally, I've written about it privately, I mean, like, I just love it, Um, so I want to do it justice, but I also was thinking about how I'm I'm really going to be, like, setting the bar way too high for, for everything. I mean, I just really love this show, and uh, you can have whatever opinions you want on it, but you you should have the opinion that it's brilliant because it's brilliant.
0: I have to say, I had the good fortune to direct a production before, right before COVID. Like, the last theatrical experience I had was my production of Assassins. Um, and I got to pick it. I am re- I love Assassins a lot. But in going back and looking at it, I do think it is... I hate... I think we overuse the word genius. But it is... I think it's a stellar piece of theater. And if you don't know it, I will highly encourage um, you... Uh, investigating it because I think it asks really interesting questions and, and delves into a very, um, dark, but interesting corner of American history and, uh, American, just uh, the story of our country.
1: And I will, I will say that to me, it says more about America than any other piece of art that I know. It says more about America and more about a specific American problem that is only getting larger, so I think it's very important.
0: Um, <clears throat> and Stevenson that would hate for us. We will not call this show relevant. We will because, not call it relevant, <laughs> um, <laughs> though it is uh, certainly a, a piece that I think um, only its impact only grows over time. I think that's yes. the way the way I would phrase it.
1: We'll just we'll just say it's schmellevent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean
0: it, it's it, it is deeply
1: here. I got it. I yeah, got it. yeah. It it has themes and issues addressed that only are more resonant as time goes on.
0: Resonant. That's the word I'm resonant. looking for. Yeah. Okay. So with that, uh, that will bring us to the speed test.
1: Yep.
2: Hudson's 4 doesn't matter, matter. Hudson's 4X doesn't matter. Hudson's 4 doesn't matter. Hudson's 4X doesn't matter.
0: Where I will do my best to summarize the plot of Assassins in under one minute. I do feel like it is quite easy to summarize the plot of assassins. So instead I'm going to do my best to name all of the assassins featured and the president they tried to kill. I mean, I think I'm going to throw that wrinkle in there because we have so much to cover in this episode and we're not going to be able to like go in depth on the history of all the assassins probably. So yeah, because there is no plot spoiler alert. There's no plot of assassins really. There
1: was not, not really a plot. Although, I mean, Things we'll happen. go into that, but it's not—it's not a conventional plot musical, certainly.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, do you have a minute on the clock? Anika? I do have
1: a minute on the clock. Since you're going to name the assassins, I won't name the assassins. I'll just do a regular countdown. All right, three, two, one, shoot a president.
0: Okay, so John Wilkes Booth uh, is featured. He tries to kill Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is featured, who obviously uh, kills um, kills John F. Kennedy. Uh, you have Chulgosh, uh, Leon Cholgosh, who tries to kill William McKinley. Uh, or not to, tries to kill, he does kill William McKinley. Uh, you have uh, Charles Gatteau, who uh, try, uh, kills James Garfield. Um, and then you have uh, Sarah Jane Moore, who tries to get Gerald Ford. Um, Squeaky Fromm, who also tries to get Gerald Ford. Um, and then you have uh, uh, John Hinckley Jr., who tries to get Ronald Reagan. Um, and you have... Uh, um, uh, Sam Bick, who tries to get Richard Nixon, and then you have um, who am I? Oh, not guitar. Um, um, uh, oh my God, um, Santara, who tries to get FDR, um, and then um, I
1: think that's it. I think that's
0: it. I don't know if I got all nine. I think I'm forgetting someone, but
1: here you are. No, um, yeah, I think you got it.
0: I think that's everyone.
1: I think that's everyone it, Chol- who's de- dealt with in the show and doesn't make, like, a ghostly appearance. Right, right, capacity. right.
0: That is... So I, I, I got the two ladies. I got Gosh. I got Booth. Yeah. I got, yeah, I think I got everyone, because there's only nine, right?
1: There's there's nine, yeah. Yeah. You didn't do it in order.
0: I did not do it. I certainly okay. did not do it in historical order or order of the show. Or
1: order of the show. And we should just also say, if you're not familiar with Assassins, um, which... Go listen to Assassins. It, the, the original cast album... Ha- actually really gives you a lot about the show. They have included the final scene. Um
0: it's one act ninety minutes. So yeah, it's and yeah. the album's probably like sixty minutes of that show. I so mean, it and yeah. it and gives you the entire like scene yes. at the end, which is like the eleven o'clock number. So yeah.
1: it, it really like gives you what the show is. So maybe pause this if you don't know assassins at all and go listen to it and come back. But, um, also there's a balladeer who's kind of a folk singer, who's a narrator throughout the show. We'll talk about him more. And there's also a proprietor who is kind of the, if the balladeer is the sort of lighter side of things, um, the hopeful, optimistic American dream representative, the, the proprietor is sort of the darker, uh, underbelly of the, American thing. They are two characters, kind of weave in and out. We'll probably talk about. Well, and them. the
0: proprietor really only appears in the opening and closing number, um, per the script. I think.
1: Well, yeah. he's in another, another national anthem. Sure, in
0: another national anthem. Yeah. So, um, and at least in the original production, it was also all set within the confines of like a carnival. Shoot yeah. him kill the press, like a shoot him game at a at a fair kind of carnival atmosphere. Right. So that was kind of. Yeah. That's I think important to understand before we get into right.
1: talking about it. Yeah.
0: And that will bring us to Why, God, Why.
2: Why, God, why today?
0: Where we talk about the big idea of the show, what uh, is the idea that the authors are hoping to explore and convey, and why they're telling the story. So as we kind of alluded to earlier, Assassins really is an examination of of America. And I I would go as far to say it's an examination of the American dream. And everybody having the right um, to quote unquote be happy or to pursue happiness, um, which I think is an interesting kind of way to think about it. But it is fundamentally based in and the myth, the American myth and the story that we tell ourselves about our history. And I think there's a really interesting, um, Sondheim talks about in the, in writing the music for the balladeer, he really went to like American folk music and Um, And a lot of the folk tunes that we know and learn in school or just learn in our general culture are actually a lot darker and a lot more complicated than we um, learn them or, you know, or that we interpret them to be. Um, And I think it's an interesting parallel to what they are trying to say about American history, that it is a lot more complex, and not as nice and neat and clean as good guys and bad guys. And this is a problem that is unique to our country um and so there is a motif of posterity and notoriety i don't think that's really what the show's about mm-hmm. um it's not i don't think it is like about trying to seek fame or and i i think it's a little i, I it's it's tough to talk about it in a contemporary context cuz i think there are a lot of um, easy parallels to draw. Whether or not the authors would say there are par- parallels is a different matter, but mm-hmm. um, we'll talk about that later. But Anika, what would you say is the is the why of a why God? Why what's the what's the purpose of
1: assassins? Well, I think it is a little bit about fame. I would say. I mean, to me, it has a very specific message, um, which is that yes, totally agree. It's largely about the American Dream and about specifically what we say, which is the sort of like anyone can succeed here if you just work really hard you can make it from the bottom to the top and how that really is not true for many people and um i think what this show is dealing with is the idea that if we are telling people this is true and if it is not true what is happening is people are finding a loophole to this which is that if you cannot if you cannot achieve success by just hard work and working every day and right, you know, doing all the things that they tell you in this thing. Um, and you will achieve fame and fortune. Um, what these assassins are doing is finding a way to make their lives notable, um, to achieve a certain kind of success, because I think part of the American dream is also this idea of fame and you will be known and you will be lauded. And so, um, there the loophole is that you can still achieve fame you can still achieve notability notoriety um attention can be paid to you if you do a terrible terrible thing people will know who you are and this is i think a dark loophole that's built into our system that we choose not to address so to me that's a very very important message because i see it more and more and more and more In like every time there's a school shooting, every time there's a mass shooting, I think of assassins because I think, oh, what assassins has identified as this massive problem in our fundamental mythology is only going to get worse as people have fewer and fewer chances to achieve the kind of success that they want. Um, They are finding this way to achieve um, notoriety, to get people to pay attention to them, for people to know who they are. Um, and I think that is such an important, dark, interesting thing for a musical to have as a message. And I just, I think it's so special and important.
0: I think, so I guess what I would say from that is like, uh, uh, is that, is it really the organizing principle? It's certainly like a theme that, that, cause I, in some ways, like what I would couple that with is like this, it, where they are one in the same is the rugged individualism that we sell as a part of mm-hmm. Americana. Yeah. Right. And that, and that can take its form in fame and notoriety. It can take its form. And some of them certainly want that it is absolutely at play with all of them. It's something that connects
1: yeah. all of
0: them. Um, but also like this dissatisfaction with America. So it's kind of one in the same, like that somehow they're not getting their, They're not getting their due, right? They're not getting their
1: due, yeah.
0: And so, and they want to do something about that. And so, I mean, to me, the instructive part of it is that last scene that is completely captured on the original cast recording, where they talk about death of a salesman and they talk about attention must be paid and and that coming into it and that Lee Harvey Oswald in this conception of him has come to the Texas School Book Depository to kill himself and is then recruited by these assassins to kill John F Kennedy to take out to take out his anger with America the world everything by killing the president mm-hmm. and so And I I think like, it's not necessarily, I mean, it is, there's a whole lot of fame and notoriety to have the whole Brutus thing that comes into that. But I do think in some ways it is like, like the dignity of the individual on some, in some way is somehow like at at play in what they are examining, questioning, interrogating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I also feel like it's also about the formation of this alternative community in them. You know, there's that sense of like, they each they say it in the last scene too where they say you know without you, right that yes you're we are just a kind of bunch of weirdos with nothing connecting us um together we are something else
0: which is really interesting because there really is not another I can't think of another piece of art that explores this so yeah um so much like I I don't know have there been like biopics of Lee Harvey, I'm sure there have, but the, this gets at something that is so unique that yeah. I think, like as we were looking into it, I just I'm really happy we're diving into it because it is such a an individual and unique piece of art.
1: It truly, truly is in in every way. I mean, and structurally, in terms of the way it's you know conceived, it's like sort of a song cycle. It's sort of this kind of absurdist piece of theater. It's like breaks all of these rules. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think. I think it's interesting. It certainly dives into the kind of origin story of an anti-hero in a way i mean the piece that I'm, is hopping to my mind is joker oddly enough oh um, sure i mean yes yeah 100 yeah with that kind of sense of like and obviously we're in an era where we're doing a lot of this on a like on a, a little bit more shallow level where it's like all oh, the villain origin stories are happening right now i think we are i mean with oklahoma i think it's very interesting that like a lot of productions like to focus on judd right now as opposed to curly you know because i think we are we're in an era where we're more interested in finding the psychological backstory to dark characters, I think, but I can't think of a show that, that does this in exactly this way. I mean, it, it uses, and it's funny cause it's very obvious where it's pulling its DNA from. Like, as you said, death of a salesman is like quoted in there. Julius Caesar is in there. Like this is a, this is a piece that has a lot on its mind. Um, and it's a very rich, deep text, which is why you can literally spend your entire lifetime um, obsessed with it, as I have. Um, but it, it, yeah, it is something. So I, it's not something that I've I've ever seen articulated in quite this way. It's it's totally audacious in what it is setting out to do, and it just nails a certain part of American culture in a way that I think nothing else has.
0: Well and particularly to tackle it as a musical and already like tough form as we've talked about a million times on this podcast. But like it's it's a fascinating thing to dive into. So let's go ahead and dive into it. Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Assassins?
2: We can never go back to before.
1: Well this is an interesting one because uh I didn't really want to dive into the assassins themselves because I think the show actually does a really good job of that. Um, Pretty much all of the information you get in the show assassins is accurate. They really didn't uh, take these real life people and put too much on there that wasn't in there already. And some direct quotes. Yeah, a lot of direct quotes, a lot of like little details. I mean, it's really amazing. And because also I'm a, as a dramaturg, I often have to deal with people who are adapting the lives of real people stories of real people, previous histories. and it's it's something that I often have to tell people to kind of break away from because it's like you're telling your story, you're not te- necessarily telling the real story of this person. A lot of times historical details will get in the way of a, of a narrative rather than help. and it's so seamlessly woven into assassins that it really is hard to pare it out like because you don't nothing really stands out as like, oh, that's a weird detail, it must be real, um, which is usually what happens. So anyway, instead of talking about the assassins, I thought I would talk a little bit about John Weidman, because I feel like we talk a lot about Sondheim, who is obviously the titan of the American theater, genius person, brilliant. We talked a bit about him in Into the Woods. I'm sure we will talk about him again in future podcasts, because his work is, I mean, come on. Well, of course we A don't. body of work, yeah, yeah. I mean. Um, but I also feel like we have a tendency to sometimes go, oh, a Sondheim show, which is true, but also Sondheim always is working with a collaborator. I have definitely done that oh, a lot all that. the time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, I've done Even that Even when Sondheim. I
0: did Assassins, and I, yeah. like, uh, now I'm a little regretting it because John Whiteman brings so much to this. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, so and Sondheim works with the same collaborators, and it's interesting to sort of see which parts of his writing gets pulled get pulled out with these different um, voices. I mean, I think Weidman and Lapine are kind of the major two that he works with a lot. But um, yeah, so I just thought I would go, give you a little a little touch of John Weidman, um, just because he's awesome and I love him. And he's also just a really lovely dude. So. so John Weidman is the son of novelist and dramatist Jerome Weidman, who is the book writer of the musical I Can Get It For You Wholesale, um, which we primarily know now as the first show that Harvest Streisand appeared in as Miss Marmelstein. But um, so John Wideman was raised around theater, uh, loved it from an early age, although he also loved baseball, which is going to come into play a little bit. Um, And he went to Harvard. He was getting a B.A. in East Asian history, which will also come into play in his story. And while he was there, he befriended Timothy Krauss, who is the son of Russell Krauss, who was the co-book writer of The Sound of Music. So because they were buddies, they decided to just write a hasty pudding musical called A Hit and a Myth, which is a title that I had to say because it's so silly and I love it so much. I love a pun. Um, But basically, he was still on his track to do other things. He taught school um, and then he went to law school and he was about three years through law school when he was like, this is not for me. I know this is not for me. Um,
0: three years in. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, he was Tough. like, he was, I think he ended up getting a, a law degree, but, um, he reached out to two people for an internship, uh, based with the thought that basically like he was just going to follow other things that he was interested with. So one of those messages went to the commissioner of major league baseball, who did not respond and the other one went to Hal Prince and Hal Prince who of course is notably a supporter of young theater artists and and really just their story after story after story about how wonderful he was if you if you reached out to him and Um, were interested in being in theater, he just would take you under his wing, and it was wonderful.
0: One of my biggest regrets in life is that I didn't believe that, and I didn't do it. Me too. Someone told me to do it, and I didn't do it. Me too. And I regret it
1: every day. Me too, because then so many people after he died just had these wonderful stories, and I was like, my God. So Hal Prince agrees to meet with John Weidman, and John Weidman sits in his office and basically kind of says, I have an idea for a play. It's about Japan, because as we said, John Weidman... Was majoring in East Asian history, so that's a big thing for him and Hal Prince is like great write that play He gives him $500 a kind of tiny commission to write the play And John Weidman goes off and writes a play that is basically the first proto-draft of Pacific Overtures And then Hal Prince says oh, you know what this should be a musical Um, Let me introduce you to Stephen Sondheim. I think you guys should write this together and then they do write it together It opens on Broadway We'll probably discuss this in another podcast, but uh, it it is the show Pacific Overtures, which I also love very much. So after that, Weidman is officially not going to be a lawyer anymore. He becomes a writer. Um, He's writing for National Lampoon. He's writing screenplays, and he also begins writing scripts for Sesame Street because he's watching it with his kids, and he's like, oh, this is great. So he starts doing that, Um, and he he gets more work as a book writer, including updating the book of Anything Goes to the version that we kind of use now-ish. And then as his career goes on, he, as I said he collaborates with Sondheim twice again, uh, once on Assassins which we will be discussing in this podcast and once on Roadshow, which is much later but um, he's really just a wonderful, smart writer and uh, we're lucky to have his work on on stages and he lives on the Upper West Side and I run into him sometime and he's always so nice.
0: So that will bring us to Putting It Together. Bit
1: by bit, putting it together Piece by
2: piece, only way to make a work of art.
0: Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So, Stephen Sondheim was on um, a committee with uh, Stuart Ostro's Musical Theater Lab to read unproduced new musicals. And uh, one of the shows in that stack had the title Assassins by Charles Gilbert. Uh, And it was about a soldier from World War II um, who became an assassin urged on by the spirits of former assassins. So, Sondheim like took it, the play apparently is terrible but he took it to John Wyman um who thought cuz he thought it was an interesting idea for a musical so he took it to John Wyman and uh and he agreed that it was something that he was really drawn to so they got permission from Charles Gilbert to basically take the title and rough concept but kind of not really but basically yeah. like the carnival atmosphere the title and the idea of You're spirits of it. former assassins and make it into a different thing so Charles Gilbert has nothing officially to do with assassins, though he is credited and gets a royalty check, which is nice yeah. and honorable, if you're going to be inspired by someone else's work, I think. So I put that in a, a notch of a good human, like good humans. Anyway, so Weidman is drawn to the material because he really wanted to make sense of the assassination of JFK from his childhood. Um, and how could the anger, basically, how could the anger of one man cause such destruction and grief Um, really internationally and having all of these characters poke and prod at each other became the center of the show that that somehow they were going to uncover some kind of truth that would help people make sense of that tragedy Um, because everyone kind of thinks that they you know certainly up to assassins and I think even still today presidential assassins are very much considered outside the American experience, quote-unquote. And they really wanted to attack that and say that that's actually not the case and they very much are a product of the American experience. Um, And that that everyone kind of writes them off as these crazy, nothing-in-common people and they really thought if they put them together, some common grievance would emerge. And once they had a sense of that, they could start writing and that became the dark, kind of claustrophobic world of the assassins that they created
1: and they really talked a ton about this before they ever put paid pen to paper and originally they had thought about including not just the american assassins but of which there were more than 9 um but also brutus and famous assassins throughout history but they they shunted that pretty quickly because they they just decided to focus on america um and specifically these 9 uh although there's some funny stories about the other ones that were briefly included. Yeah.
0: So there was lots of talking for months and uh, Weidman did a significant amount of research and newspaper clippings of more recent characters, books on the older ones and credits James Clark's book, American assassins, the darker side of politics with being one of the um, really valuable sources of a lot of his information, which as we said was, is quite accurate throughout the show. Um, and then he basically wrote a full version of the script and sent it to Sondheim and Sondheim, uh, has since said that that was the most exciting moment he's ever had in his writing career was reading that first script of Assassins, which um, is really interesting um, to me and uh, such a, an amazing career that, that the, this was such an exciting um, project to him and even to him and the people involved was a very singular experience. So they, as Annika said, they moved a bunch of different assassins in and out of the piece until they thought they had the right collection of nine that held the points of view and attitudes that they wanted to explore. So some of the cut assassins include Richard Lawrence, who tried to assassinate Andrew Jackson, but then the gun didn't go off, and so Jackson, like, hit him on the head with his cane, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is a very Andrew Jackson story. Um, And then a group of um, Puerto Rican nationals who um, tried to kill Harry Truman, and, um, probably most notably John Shrink who tried to kill Teddy Roosevelt um, and was actually played by Christopher Durang during a, one of the readings of the show. And uh, Durang came up to them after the show and said, you really don't need me in the show. You should cut me, which is a, an amazing like writer to writer. Like, yeah, I, I think it's a funny scene, but you really don't need me. So cut me. <laughs> I just love that. Hilarious. And the other kind of big um, developmental, so they, they, they were going to premiere at Playwrights Horizons, um, which is a s- small-ish, not really that small, big in um, stature, off-Broadway company in New York, um, where they were only going to have 30 performances. And because of the subscription model at Playwrights Horizons, they like sold out the show almost instantly because everyone wanted to see the new Stephen Sondheim show. Um, so all that is to say the development is not super well tracked in terms of what happened throughout the rehearsal process, but one of the the biggest notable changes slash cuts um, as we have... Um, talked about many times and have come to learn about the musical theater canon the opening uh was a lot was under discussion a lot in Mm -hmm. how to set up the show and so at one point um Sondheim wrote a song called the flag song which has now been immortalized by Raul Esparza on a cd that you can listen to um on anywhere you stream music or youtube or whatnot but um basically they they had they already had the opening number which is everybody's got the right And they thought that maybe if they started the show outside the claustrophobic world um, on a contemporary street corner as a presidential motorcade um, approaches, um, that they could start to really explore this idea of patriotism more expressly from the beginning. Um, But they decided it was too contrary to the rest of the evening. um, And so they ended up cutting it. And actually, at one point, one of the facts that I thought was really interesting was they... They at one point had this idea in one of their conversations that the conception of the show was it started with Lee Harvey Oswald coming to the Texas School Book Depository and the books would open and the characters would emerge out of the books prior to him actually, you know, assassinating JFK. Um, And James Lapine actually is the one who read the show and was like, you shouldn't, you're giving away your biggest card up front. You should wait till the end to see Lee Harvey Oswald, which I think is a really astute and wise um, piece of advice because I think you you spend so much time with all of those you kind of forget about Lee Harvey Oswald and then yeah. he emerges at the end as which is a really fascinating fascinating thing. And as I said earlier, um, history being passed down through folk songs um, really became the inspiration for the Balladeer and um, the Balladeer notably sings all the songs about successful assassinations um, except for JFK which um, I do think is one of the weird things about the show is that certainly it looks at failed assassins too. It's not really just talking about successful assassins for those of you who maybe had a momentary thought of like, there haven't been nine presidents killed. No, but there have definitely been nine substantial attempts at a president's life. And as we said, there are others too. So um, it premiered at Players Horizons to the sold out run. It was deeply divisive to critics and audiences. A lot of people really... Um, shocked and offended by the material, uh, it was, and it was even maybe going to have a Broadway run. It was planned that there would be a Broadway transfer, but it didn't materialize. Um, and then, um, so Sam Mendes um, wanted to direct a Lon- the London premiere, and they added the song "Something Just Broke," which was an addition um, to the score that was it's written to take place after um, Lee Harvey Oswald kills JFK, um, and it basically explores um, common Americans' reaction to um the assassination and the feeling that something just broke in the country um and now it was and but they and they had written it thinking that it would be used for the broadway transfer but they actually ended up cutting it and then sam mendes kind of put it in for that um the london premiere and they now view it as very inextricable and uh as much what the show is about and and central to the show and and not um not something that um can really be cut from the show as the author's point of view on it. So um, the other major production, I mean, there have been some major productions of the show. It, it does, as we said, exist in a very specific part of the canon. But Roundabout planned a revival for 2001, which uh, was postponed in 2004 due to the events of September 11th. Um, and it was directed by Joe Mantello, and it's probably most famous for having the or double as Lee Harvey Oswald, Um, at the end of the show and it won i think five tonys including best revival and a tony for michael service services performance as booth um
2: yeah a city center
0: Encore's production there's an upcoming production at classic stage company that certainly has a lot of eyes on it yeah um it's a show that continues to loom large in many i think directors minds because it's yeah and and actors because it it it's such a it's such medium material to dive into
1: yeah and it does feel like it's it's only growing in esteem as time goes on because i think people are ready for the kind of discussions that we're having about america in a way that in 1990 and 1991 it was still controversial to to do that i mean i remember it's funny because my dad was involved in this from the beginning because he was uh, he worked at the musical theater lab. He was involved in that. So like from, from he was kind of a witness to this show growing and he loved it. And my grandfather who is, was a complete lover of the arts. His entire life was in the arts. He loves theater. He loves Sondheim was, was very offended by it. He was the kind of patriot that felt that it was very, shocking and inappropriate to put these assassins on the stage as the heroes of the story. So that's, that's, I've grown up with that kind of interesting history. And then of course, I'm like obsessed with this thing. But also, um, I think that we are in a time where our country has come to mean something different. And we are all hungry for the kind of conversations that the show has. So there have been more and more productions um, happening in in notable places, because I think it's, it, it is a piece that is getting more and more appreciated. And it's funny, I, my personal thing is that I was studying abroad in 2004, when they did the revival at Roundabout, and originally was slated for a time that I was not going to Be there. I was not going to be in the country for the entirety of the run. And so I definitely lied to my college. I sort of lied. I lied a little bit. I said that I had to come back and cut my study abroad early to go back for my cousin Simeon's wedding, which was true. But mostly it was really because I could not bear the thought that there was going to be a major revival of the show that already was like something I had listened to a million billion times and that I would miss it. So I am sorry, Vassar. I did go to my cousin's wedding, um, but I also went to that revival, like, five times.
0: That is hilarious. Confession
1: time. Oh, my God. On on the spotlight.
0: I cannot. Wow.
1: I mean, that really says all you need to know about me, right?
0: I mean, honestly, I don't think I've ever, well, I've lied to my parents, so I could go see shows, but. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. That's really funny. Oh, God. Okay, so Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside How I Saved Roosevelt?
2: What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All
1: right, so let's dive into How I Saved Roosevelt. This is the third song in the show, very early, and it is the second assassin that we're going to meet in song. Um, have profiled for us after the Ballad of Booth. And this is about Giuseppe Zangara, uh, who was an Italian immigrant who attempted to assassinate FDR and did not succeed. And the interesting thing about uh, analyzing songs, in Assassins particularly, is Sondheim analyses are always difficult, not because they aren't rich actually the opposite they're so full but also what's amazing about assassins is because you have this almost review format with these different songs each profiling a a different assassin they're they're kind of like each of them is like a mini play unto itself you get a full story within each of these songs and that's certainly true of this song um it is establishing something that we didn't quite see or we had the sort of initial inklings of in the ballad of booth and now is going to be really profiled here, which is the idea of media and publicity and fame. Um, Huge Mm -hmm. theme in the show, big, big deal, um, large purpose in the show. And this really sets it up so, so beautifully. Um, Also the notion of what it is to be American versus not American, because Zangara is not American. He was born in Italy, lived in Italy, For much of his early life so that's going to play a big part here although obviously he is american in that he moved to america and lived in america for many many years um so so see i haven't even started with the song yet and already there's lots to talk about so let's just start with the song
2: Notables are pressing in around the president-elect's car. There's Mayor Anton Cermak of Chicago. There's been a shot. I can't see. Wait. Mr. Roosevelt is waving. He's all right. But Mayor Cermak has been hit. The police have somebody in custody. An immigrant. Giuseppe Zangara. We take you now to a group of eyewitnesses who will tell us what they saw.
1: All right. So right at the top, we have this unusual beginning for a song, uh, which is that you get this radio broadcast basically. And this is a very clever way to start this because it helps them get out a lot of the exposition you need to understand what happens before the song, which is basically where FDR was, that Zangara attempted to shoot him, that he failed, that we're talking to these bystanders. But it also does a really interesting thing, which is that you are being placed as the audience, the consumer of media which is going to be very, very important for this song. So already we've been uh, positioned basically for these people to be competing for our attention. Um, We are the we, they are the they, it's all gonna come into play very shortly. And of course we start off with that uh, little bit of the Sousa March, El Capitan, um, John Philip Sousa, the March King, he has all these big patriotic, big band, Marches that were played, especially around this era, but still to this day. They're kind of quintessentially American, full of hope and optimism and major keys and big instruments and and bluster and bravado. So the most quintessentially American thing. And of course, we're about to hear even more of that.
2: And I see this guy, he's squeezing by I catch his eye
0: I say to him, where do you think you're trying to go, boy? Whoa, boy! I say, listen, you run not pulling that stunt No gentleman pushes their way to the front I say, move to the back, which he does with a grunt Which is how I saved Roosevelt Then, while I'm in my seat, I get up to clap I feel this tap, I turn this sap He says he can't see, I say, find a lap And go sit on it, which is how I say Then, he started
1: to swear, he climbed on a chair He was aiming a gun, I was standing right there So I pushed it as hard as I could in the ear is how I say Roosevelt! So here we have a few of these bystanders, and there are five of them, and what's brilliant is that that is real. There were five people who claimed that they had saved Roosevelt for exactly these reasons. You know, they pushed him off the chair, they told him to go to the back of the house, like all these different things. So Sondheim uses historical fact in this show in a really, really brilliant way, because Oftentimes when you're dealing with a show that that is actually full of history, those facts can sort of get in the way of your narrative sometimes. They can pull focus from the narrative that you are creating, um, but that never happens in this show. The real elements are so in- wonderfully woven in that you don't even notice that they are Real facts, you know this this is perfect for this song, and it just happens to be true and of course, so we have this Sousa music that is um, the background for these people who are each competing. You can feel them jostling a little bit for uh, the the attention of the the news reporter who's taking their their statements um, and they they each have these reasons that they saved Roosevelt, which we know even from here are, are sort of silly and This is going to play into this later. Um, They're all kind of like awful, you know, that they're describing things that I mean, yes, they did end up being a small part of perhaps Zengara not being able to uh, actually shoot FDR, but they're treating him terribly. I mean, they're just you know, push it, telling him to go find a lap and sit on it. You know, it's like the, they're all being terribly rude to this person. But at the same time, they are positioning themselves as these superheroes and, and v- the hero of this story against this kind of villain that they're describing with almost non-human terms, you know, boy, he calls him, he's a sap, he's a runt, like all these words, he grunts at one point. It's, it's really placing them in, in the sort of like American hero versus Zangara, who's this other they i was there. that's why he was standing back so far that's why when he aimed he missed the car just lucky i was there
2: hope you're feeling lucky right now
1: so this is great i mean we go back to the exact melody of el capitan the the susa march and um, although sandheim is woven in a, a bunch of them in here um it's not only that one um and the bystanders are just basking in their virtue, lucky I was there um, and coming together as a group, which is something that we're gonna see a lot in the show, the idea of a group versus the uh, singular person who's acting on their own, um, a lot of theme. And then we get this beautiful harmony because they are all on the good side, right? The harmony is beautiful, they are virtuous, it's all worked. and. The wonderful, amazing rhyme. Thank you, Sondheim. Always so good at this. Left bereft of FDR. I mean, come on. If you write that in your life, you're good. You're done. You know, congratulations. You've already succeeded. (laughs) It's, It's so good. But I just want to draw your attention to the rhyme scheme in here because each of these people has... A very uh, like a short repetition like the lines are short and the rhymes are very simple guy by I go boy whoa boy tap sap lap very simple one syllable, um, for the most part, and repetitive all very good it's great because you can kind of like it, it pulls your attention in each direction very simply, right? It's fun to follow these rhyme schemes. We're getting a little glimpse of, of each of these people as slightly different, but all in the same category. And then, of course, now we're about to meet Zangara, who's been placed already very differently from this.
2: You think that I scare? No scare. You think that I care? No care. I look at the world, no good, no fair, nowhere. When I am a boy, no school. I work in a ditch, no chance. to smart and rich, right by. Don't give, no glance.
1: Okay, so, so much here. First of all, after this left bereft of FDR with this great harmony, it immediately changes the mood. It slows down, it becomes a lot darker, you go from this very regimented, happy Sousa march. You know the rhythm is very distinct. Um, the rhyme scheme is very beautiful. The harmonies. Um, it it feels like you're now somewhere scary and foreign. You know, I think that's on purpose. It's just you're in Zangara's world now, and it's it's so different. Um, I think the the music here is contrasting. Uh, from this kind of like safe, happy American world to this dark villainous world, which is of course right in keeping with what these bystanders have been saying. But then that changes a little bit. I mean, but first we have Zangara saying, you know, acting like the villain that he's been portrayed as right now. You think that I scare, no scare. You think that I care, no care, you know? Um, But notably already, he has a similar simple rhyme scheme From the other people so even though this is the most highly contrasted version of like them versus us with Zangara or him versus us um already the song is kind of telling you it's not quite that simple and then we have this brilliant thing from this sort of like dark dissonant much slower place of him saying no scare no care um he's building it into something very different here so zangara is from italy southern italy and the music that he gets here when zangara starts to build up a little bit talking about his his sad childhood basically his poor background the thing that sets him up um for failure this becomes a tarantella and a tarantella is a kind of song from southern italy so of course sondheim is so brilliant that he's able to to weave in this this real appropriate song style um, for Zangara. Um, And of course it's very appropriate because Zangara is from Italy and this is not American. This is not an American song. But the other thing I love about it is that a tarantella has built into it, it's a a dance that you do. The word tarantella comes from the word for tarantula. So the idea is like you're spinning around, you have all these legs and arms and things and it becomes competitive with the drum and the dancer. Um, that's part of this dance. And so to use a Tarantella is brilliant to set up Zangara as different from American, but also reminding us of his origins. And also, I think, built into this sense of um, com- competition between both Zangara and these bystanders for our attention, which is only going to get bigger and bigger. And we can even feel that going from that slow um, in the clear almost like stoppage of this music, building into this very rhythmic thing in the same way that a march has a very uh, regular rhythm, the Tarantelle has a very regular rhythm. So all of these things are going on here. And of course, in his story, we're we're hearing echoes of something that Cholgosh is really gonna talk about, which is the unfairness of being poor not only in America, but in America, certainly um, around the world, just how much you cannot get ahead if you are poor and you just really start out with no chance, is what he says, and the rich driving by.
2: Ever since then, because of them, I have this sickness in this stomach, which is the way I make my idea to go out and kill Roosevelt.
1: Okay, so I, this is so good, too. I mean, now Zangara is really getting into his story. He's He has our attention. He's able to tell us what is happening. And this story is kind of bonkers. I mean, he's saying ever since he was little, he's had the sickness in his stomach, which is how he gets the idea to, to kill Roosevelt. I mean, like, okay. Um, and then he says, then at the end of this line, um, which has such a sort of, there's comedy in the idea of like, both this style of kind of the, the joyous peppiness of the Tarantella and then the darkness of like, oh, I have the sickness in the stomach, which is how I make the idea to to kill Roosevelt. Like this is, the show always is contrasting comedy and darkness so brilliantly and sometimes juxtaposing them, which sometimes contrast itself can be comedy. You know, saying something very dark, very lightly can be funny because it's just jarring. And so here we have the first example of that it kind of pulls down to the How I Killed Roosevelt. And then you get this interesting little drum crash and like, I think it's a trombone slide. It sounds like a vaudeville joke. Um, So here, this part of the song is still placing us with more of the bystanders. Like, Zangara isn't this scary villain that he was when he first appeared. Now he's becoming something sort of silly that you laugh at, right? It's it's a silly reasoning. Like you have a you have a stomach pain, so you're gonna kill the president. What what is that? And then of course it's gonna to build to something else.
2: First I will speak your I like kill Hoover, I get even for this stomach only Hoover up in Washington. It's winter time in Washington. Too cold for the stomach in Washington! I go down to Miami kill Roosevelt. No Nobody And with the money, they control everything, <laughs> Roosevelt over, not making a difference, you think I care who I kill, I don't care who I kill, long as it's king.
1: So here we see just a brilliant moment of this, we get that quote, that vaudeville sort of wah, wah when you're saying how I kill Roosevelt, and then it builds, right? to even more comedy because the way that Zangara is talking about his thought process for this massive and dark act of assassinating a president is, is truly absurd you know, oh, he's, he's going to kill someone because his stomach hurts, and, but you know, it's like he's planning a vacation. It's, it's too cold for the stomach in Washington, so he's not going to kill Hoover, who he really blames for the stomach illness, which is also silly. Um, he'll go down to Miami, kill Roosevelt, and it's, the way it's delivered indicates that we, we are supposed to laugh. I mean, you would laugh at this, right? So it's so light to say that, and it's so dark in its thing, so we, we are, it's comedy, but just and then we get the el capitan so it's like we're going to leave him there and this sort of like silly man who's doing this ridiculous thing and we're laughing at him um el capitan is going to bring us back to the bystanders presumably but then something happens which is that the audience is set up to laugh that music is probably covering our lobster laughter and then zangara takes it back just screams at us no laugh not funny and the music just completely drops out. And and we are, we're chided. We are successfully chided, right? There's no option there but to stop and stop laughing because the, the music doesn't let us continue to laugh. It goes back into that very dark, empty place that we started with Zangara. And then he says so simply, you know, it's not funny. Men with the money, they control everything. Do you think I care who I kill? I don't care who I kill, as long as it's kill, right? So he's making a very dark point, very contrasted to his sort of silliness of like this whole thing about like, oh, where am I going to go to kill someone? I don't know. I don't know. What's the weather like, you know? Now he's making a real point. Like, don't laugh at this. It's This is a, a terrible thing. And then it builds up to that you know, again, to that Tarantella, he's getting worked up, he has our attention, again, it goes back into that, um, to that rhythm, and interestingly, we get this kind of like, the march rhythm comes in under that Tarantella music, the dun, 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 which sounds more like military, sounds a little bit more like Sousa, I think what's going to start happening is that we're, we're blending these worlds a little bit, right, we are now sympathizing a little bit with what Zangara is saying because there's such pain in that. Don't laugh, not funny. This isn't funny. You know, if you are born poor, you can't, you don't have any control over life, right? He's done this desperate, tragic thing, but he's done it because he felt like he had no options.
2: The breaking up when I hear these shots, and I mean, lots I thought I'd plot. I My him. stomach was tied in All knots. So yeah, well, no, what happened was this. He was blowing a at- she was we saying weather is bliss. When you think that we might have missed seeing this. Miss? Lucky we were there. It was a historical event. Was every penny that we spent. Just lucky we were there. to think if I let him get up closer.
0: I saw right away, he was insane.
2: Oh, this is my husband, we're from Maine. He told me to sit, but I...
1: Okay, so now that that we've slightly shifted our perspective of Zangara to a place of sympathy a little bit for his pain, um, we're now getting a different shade from the bystanders. Um, they're arguing with each other. They seem sillier uh, than they did before, although they never seem very serious. Um, and they're becoming more overtly obsessed with the coverage right um how they look in the cameras they're not remotely concerned with the fact that a man was just killed and several people were injured so fdr was not killed but other people died in front of their eyes Um, that's not even remotely a thought instead it's like oh no i'm a mess and the cameras are on me you know it's this completely shallow uh thing that is happening with these people and in addition to that Sondheim has done a very brilliant thing here with the phrase, um, lucky we were there. Because in the beginning, they're saying that as like, wow, the world is lucky we were there because otherwise Roosevelt would have died. You know, Um, it was a lucky thing that we were there to prevent this terrible thing from happening. But now they're starting to use it as kind of a we're lucky we were there because they, how how cool that they got to witness something that was a historical event. Event. You know, they're saying things like, this makes our vacation a real success, and it's worth every penny that we spent. I mean, that is dark, a dark thing to say, right? That The fact that they were present for the attempted assassination, and they got to participate in it and pat their own backs and feel like stars for the moment, makes them happy. This makes this happy thing for them. Again, no regard at all to what has happened here, to why Zangara might have done this, to the fact that a man is dead. They are being now shifted away from this hero place that they were originally placing themselves in. And now that we have shifted um, from a place of like this dark villainy with Zangara to a place where we kind of feel that although obviously an assassination is never a good thing, like we, we feel some pity for him. We feel like there's more to this. Now those people are being pulled away from their hero status and being more aligned with Zangara because they are callous, they are shallow, they have stupid reasons for this. They are being as sort of empty and uh, blind to the darkness in this entire situation, in some ways as zangara is being so they're not so different and this is again something that's going to just be a a huge theme in the show and now in this little moment we're starting to sort of switch that balance again this is why it's like a little play i mean it it has a a change it really shifts every your perspective of all these things and works in these themes so good okay let's keep going
2: Anything. Only American. They gotta have nothing. more oh, luck. more oh, girls. They gotta no smart. No school. But they gotta no foreign tool. They gotta American. American nothing. And why they the no photographers. But I gotta no photographers. Only capitalists get photographers. Not right.
1: All right. so this is very interesting, too. In addition to all this beautiful work that's being done up until this point, now we have Zangara again reacting really angrily to something, but now it's not us. It's it's overhearing these bystanders say that he's probably a left-wing foreigner, and he's completely rejecting that because he doesn't want to be seen as part of a... F- Political philosophy, but also I think it's more than that. He he's American. He doesn't want to be seen as foreign. You know, these bystanders are putting him as not American because he did something like this. But his he that is what really hurts him because he his point is he is American. He couldn't he couldn't make a life for himself or fix his stomach pain. In America, all of this stuff is happening in America. This was a response to his life in America. He is from Italy, but he is American. Um, he has been living here. He cannot be just pushed aside as acting for some left-wing foreigner or right or anything. It's not about politics of. It's not about fringe politics. It's about a, a visceral thing. An American person who lived in America, no matter where he was born, has suffered this injustice and this is why he did it but of course it's easier for people to think oh that could never happen here that's not legitimate this is a this is just some fringe thing that this guy is doing this foreigner and of course this is a problem we still have here the idea that immigrants are are the ones who are evil and bad and americans are the ones who are good and and strong and tough workers and you know this dichotomy we like to draw as humans so this is what really upsets him and then we get this beautiful thing in the music too, because some of the instrumentation from the Sousa march is is playing into his music, this kind of trumpet trills and uh, different elements of it, but it's not coming together. It kind of feels like jarring and sort of scattered. And so the music here, and shout out to Michael uh, Starobin, who does the orchestrations for a lot of Sondheim shows who did these. Um, I think the music here is illustrating another element of Zangara's frustration. He's saying he's American and he's getting some of these instruments that go with this ultra American Sousa music, but it just isn't coming together. The music is refusing to kind of do what he is saying. And then he starts to sing this, why are there no photographers? Only capitalists get photographers. And it's back in the Tarantella, right? He, no matter how much he's trying to get free of this idea that he is not American, the music is illustrating what the bystanders are doing for him, which is that no matter what, what he's saying, his music is Italian, right? His music is this foreign music. Um, and I think that's such an interesting interplay in this whole thing too. He, he's, he's able to control his music to a certain degree, but ultimately he cannot break away from it in the same way that he can't break away from the idea that he is an immigrant in the eyes of these people. Um, and of course, we get another brilliant thing here, which is that he's saying, "Where are the why are there no photographers, only capitalists get photographers." This is so perfect on so many levels. Again, just like the bystanders, he is obsessed with his coverage. He wants people to be paying attention to him he wants the to feel like a star like in the same way that one of these bystanders is about to say he wants that attention that fame that legacy again this is huge in this show and this is the song where it's really being laid out And what's wild about this is this is so thematically right for this show and the point that this show is making. But this is also something that the real Giuseppe Zangara basically said when he was being executed. There were no newsreel cameras and he was mad about it. Um, So they've taken a real thing and they've woven it into this huge, this show about these larger issues. So the blend of reality and um, drama here is just uh, perfect. So let's go to the end. And now, I mean, everything in this song has come together, right? Zangara is mad about not having the cameras. He's saying like, I don't care about any of this. Whatever, just basically kill me. The bystanders are are now totally talking about, oh, what a success it was, and and they feel like a star. All those, all of these pictures that are being taken of them, um, they're the same. They're they're singing now different music, right? Because the bystanders are singing their Sousa El Capitan music. Zangara is singing this sort of counterpoint, dun 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 dun, um, which works totally with what the bystanders are singing. Right, the song has started with them on very different musical planes. Then it's come together where they're sort of overlapping thematically with what they're saying, but also as we saw with Zangara, um, a little bit of both. He's trying to have both musical worlds, and now at the end, it's it's the same right? Their music all goes together because ultimately they're all motivated by the exact same thing, which is that they want to be famous. They want to be noted. They're like Zangara wants his pain to be paid attention to. And, and all of these bystanders, you know, are so thrilled that they can go home and now show their press coverage. Um, a very dark point is being made and it's being made so beautifully on so many different levels here. Um, also, this is where I think the Tarantella Elma, you know, the real com- competition sort of part of it feels like it's very present They're all singing together, but it's also like just this kind of all this music and then this amazing final moment where um, Zangara has this high note as he's being electrocuted while all the other bystanders have this harmony right it all comes together, you can't have one without the other um, The bystanders would not be able to have their nifty story about their great vacation without Zangara doing this thing. Zangara wants the attention of people to be able to focus on his pain, um, perfectly encapsulated in this music here. And again, we get this balance of dark and light. I mean, this is a musical theater song that ends with a man literally being electrocuted and singing a high note. That is audacious and wonderful. And we've just had our entire perspective shifted, not only of Zangara and having a little pity for what he is, you know, the bad way he was treated by all these Americans in the beginning, um, which I'm sure is not a rare occurrence. He was a very short man. So, you know, he's trying to step on a, a chair to see things and people are just pushing him around and telling him to go stand in the back, but also for this life that he had that really just, never gave him the chance to to become something else um so by the end of this we are really uh exactly where we need to be to proceed and they've and uh, sondheim and, and weidman have made a really interesting point too about um these regular people these bystanders and bystanders and how they are not that similar in their motivation and how they are not that dissimilar in their motivation from these assassins it is it is not really heroes and villains at all. And here we're seeing that um, beautifully, beautifully encapsulated. It's just a really great, beautiful song Um, and uh, tells us so much.
0: And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria?
1: How do you solve a
2: problem like Maria?
0: Where we talk about some of the issues with assassins, both internal and external. And this show certainly has lots of issues and things surrounding it because it is such a controversial topic. So let's start with let's start with the very like obvious to someone who doesn't know assassins, who's not familiar with it. I think there's a misconception that the show glorifies assassination attempts on the president, and that's why so many people um, initially reacted so harshly to the material. This isn't something we should be glorifying, as we alluded to earlier, but. Um, you know, Annika, what would you say to those people? Cause I, I, I fundamentally disagree, but what would you say to those people in a way to um, get them to accept the show or um or be open to the idea of seeing it and exploring the ideas and questions it's asking?
1: Yeah, I mean this is a weird one because I've run into this more than I thought I would, including from some people that I would have thought would know better. You know, I think sometimes there's a sense of like, this is not an appropriate show to do at a certain time. Um, and sometimes I agree. I feel like after nine 11, this is asking deep questions about America in a way that like, when the country is collectively hurting, feels like maybe it's not a great time to dive into those sort of dark underbelly, but, um, but yeah, I, I heard this about a production that the dramaturg actually said something about, like, I don't think we should be doing this show right now because she felt like the pol- politics were too heady and that this was in some way going to be seen as like pro-assassination. And I, I just, to me, I'm like, if you think that this show is about assassination and the assassination of a president, then you really don't understand what this show is about. Because I think it it actually very quickly, I mean, really, except for Booth, None of the assassins are presented as having any sort of legitimate grievance with the specific president. The fact that their presidents is sort of like it's just kind of a capital P president. The, the people and their policies are pretty much not on trial at all. And I think it's so much more about what unites them. What is this thing about the American dream? So, I mean, um,
0: to me, it's the most anti-assassination it, piece I could possibly yeah. think of. Like I, I remember like engaging with it. Obviously, we're in a divisive political time. Yeah. But I, when I first engaged with it, I was like, "Wow, this makes me wish so deeply for protection for every single person who occupies the offices of the presidency." Because yeah. I don't want, like, I don't want anyone to be like, "This is it's awful." Like, what, yeah, it's not <laughs> good in any way, shape, or form. It's never like, yeah. I never wish death upon those people, even if I no. disagree with them, because yeah. ultimately, like, it's just not. It's not no. good. It doesn't, yeah. it, there's no, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's awful. It, yeah. There is no, for me, there is no justification that actually makes that worthwhile right. and positive. And I think the show makes that point to me, makes that very point very clearly, clearly that it's
1: not, I mean, I think you are, I think you are led to understand and um, be inside the skin of these people more than you would ever think. And that's part of why I think the show is so brilliant because I think by the end of it, it actually has allowed you to understand something you thought would be fundamentally un-understandable, which is that by the end of that last scene, you're a little bit like, oh, oh crap, they're making interesting good arguments, which is kind of the point of the show, which is that like this is not villainous other people. These are people who have have gone through an experience of what it is to be poor in America, what it is to be American and and not succeed for various reasons, and led to this conclusion. So, yeah, I, I think that's it. although there I do have one funny little story about that, which is that when they did the city center production of assassins, it was after Trump had been elected, there had already been a crazy controversy about them doing Julius Caesar in the park in the park. And Which is so why he was running, right? I think it maybe was, that was while when he was, he was running. running. Yeah.
0: Um, no, no, no. Julius Caesar was right after he took office.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was definitely like uh, fraud time. Yeah. And they got protests. And, and I mean, it was a little more overt. They addressed Julius Caesar in a kind of Trumpian look at some point. But um, so I was like, oh, God, they're going to do assassins. The people who have kind of misunderstood Julius Caesar are going to come right on over and think that these, you know... New York liberals are doing a pro-assassination piece. We're going to get the same protests, um, which is uh, what I wrote a piece about for New York Magazine. If you want to read it, but um, I shameless
0: went shameless plug. Uh, oh, did I
1: <laughs> did I drop something there? Did I drop a reference yeah. to my published piece? So sorry. Let me just pick that up and tuck it in my resume. Um, but when I went to City Center to see Assassins. I was in this lobby and city center has this big lobby so you can see people. And I see someone in a red baseball cap. And I think, oh, God, here we go. This is, what am I going to do? This is like, this. we're starting. This is clearly someone in a Trump hat. They're they're going to make trouble. What do we do when, when they start this? And then he turned around and the hat said, hello, Dolly. And I, was <laughs> like, I was like, oh, we're fine. We're all cool here. That's really funny. Yeah, That's really funny. So let's go ahead and
0: talk about Something Just Broke, which I I think we both share an opinion. We share the same opinion that I I find it to be an unnecessary addition to the show. The authors feel that it is essential. You cannot cut it. They're not interested in productions cutting it. Um, I, I struggle with it because it feels so antithetical to everything that they've done for the last 90 minutes. And it, it, it is really like jarring in a way that I think is ultimately not helpful to the overall message and point. Um, I'm also aware that I, I think to have lived through the JFK assassination it was a national traumatic event. And I think that in some ways the authors are responding to that need for that kind of catharsis for a certain segment of the audience, I just don't think it's necessary, but I I actually, like, I feel very firmly that it's not necessary, but Annika, how would you, like, say, how would you talk about this? What, what, why, what would be your argument around not including something just broke?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do share the same opinion. I'm, I'm not a fan of including it, um... It's very interesting to me that the the authors feel so strongly that it must be included now because it wasn't originally in the uh, off Broadway production. They wrote it for the Broadway production that was going to happen that didn't happen, and then they decided to include it in the London production, and now it's now it's in there. Um, I I do feel the same way. I feel like the the show makes a really interesting point about uh, these people these assassins and the last scene especially brings you to a place where you are actually brought to a level of understanding of the logic of what they are doing and to me that is a very 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 important part of this whole thing like i i think that scene is just stunning partially because you are made to understand something that you thought you could never understand and thus you are sort of I mean, it's radical empathy, which we've talked about. It's like you are placed in the in the position of these people that, if you want to think of them as outsiders, as crazy people, as as aberrants, they're not. They're not that. You are made to to understand what they are doing, and that realization is horrifying and also very important because I think part of the point of the show is that this is not just these weirdos these dark people these bad people that this could be anyone that we are all as Americans subject to the same mythologies the same rules and the same frustrations to some degree Um, so when you're brought to this place I think it's you can trust your audience to understand both that there is a twisted and dark and upsetting logic to what they're talking about, but also that you are still a person with a moral center. You're not going to go out and shoot a president. You would still never do that, but now you have a better understanding of what they're doing. So I think you're intended to feel that way. And I think going straight from there to everybody's got the right is just such a powerful combination. It makes you feel kind of ill, and to to interrupt that with something just broke to kind of have a moment of like, oh, wait, but wait, but wait, here's normal, here's normal, don't worry, don't worry, like this is still normal. I, I think just really undercuts that message. And yeah, that's a
0: good, yeah, that's a good way of saying it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because Sondheim doesn't really he he doesn't like it really when people assign Brechtian values to his work. I don't think he's writing with a very Brechtian intent. However, I do think a lot of his shows have a Brechtian, uh, thematic resonance. And this is definitely one of those things because just to, to greatly oversimplify Brecht, um, something that Brecht felt very strongly about was when your show is dealing with political issues, which they almost always did for Brecht. Um, he wanted you as the audience to go and see this and be made aware of problems in human life, in society in specific societies. Um, To be frustrated by those things, to have to feel the tragedy, feel the pain of them, feel the wrongness of them. But he felt very strongly that if you were given catharsis, if you were able to connect with the story and then able to kind of purge those feelings, go through an entire emotional cycle, um, the theater piece was failing. Because he felt that the theater piece should leave you with the uncomfortable feelings of uh, this Unfairness, this pain, the situation that people are living through—if they're, especially if they're poor, especially if they're um, undervalued in society—that you should just go out into the world and and have that discomfort with you, because then that discomfort is going to make you go actually try to change these things, as opposed to catharsis, which is making you kind of go, oh, that was so sad. I feel those things. Now let's go and eat dinner and talk about other things. You know, it's it's a really different. Feeling, And I think that Assassins is actually very successfully Brechtian in that way, because I think you are left with these horrible feelings of like, oh, my God, there is a fundamental flaw in the DNA of America. There is a fundamental issue that we are not addressing about what we have promised people in our mythology that is not attainable by a lot of people. And then the end of the show without something just broke, I think, leaves you there. With like, yeah, we got to deal with this. Collectively, as a culture, we have to face this. We have to look at it. And we have to not push away these people who are frustrated. We have to actually address this. Including something just broke, to me, is a little bit like, just softens that in a way that I, I, I find sort of unsatisfying. I also find it very interesting. I mean, I talked about this and How I Saved Roosevelt. the portrayal of regular people in the show. I think is also kind of an important element. Like, as we saw, those bystanders are not good moral people. I mean, they are kind of just the same as Zangara in their hunger for fame, in their desire, you know, they're saying that their vacation is a success because they watched a man murdered, because they're on the news, because they have so many photos taken of them like a star. Like, the show has placed people, regular Americans, on this sort of spectrum of American dreamness that this the same one that the that the uh, assassins are on So to do this and have these regular people be like what we would consider like normal good people who feel things who are devastated by it It, it does it feels like it's a new thing that hasn't been in the show before. So to me, I just It's not my favorite
0: Well, it like it it, it certainly takes you out of the the world that they've created and a little bit like back to reality quote-unquote which is yeah. not helpful to their overall case. I don't think. Uh, it is, yeah, uh, it's how I would probably say it. But I think you're right to say that it undercuts it. And I, I think the point about regular people is really valuable because even the the glimpses, if there are other glimpses of of normal, not assassins, throughout. Um, Throughout the show, even, you could look at Cholgosh. Like, they're all caricatures of... Yeah. Like, you know, I I think about the... Oh, it's in the paper. Beef. Like, all those, like, you know, it's very... It's very, like, a... Somehow, like, there's a false reality that has been created even in the normal world. And so, to suddenly, like, bring us to that this very, like, you know, housewife who feels like the world just broke open. Like, it just doesn't feel... It feels like the, like, I don't want to say it feels like the obvious solution, but it feels like a, yeah, duh. Like, haven't Uh we been, like, talking about that for the last night? Like, that's the implicit understanding I walked into this with. Yeah. Why do you have to remind me of the implicit understanding? I don't agree that we need that to magically make everything better or to somehow make everything better and okay. And like, Oh, you're safe. Like, or whatever. Like it's, it just, it's like, it, it takes out all the bite. It takes out all the bite for me. And, and in a way that is, it just, to me it undermines everything they've done. It undermines everything they've done.
1: It, It feels to me a little bit like an answer to the people who would be offended by this entire concept. And to me, I'm a little bit like, I don't know. I think if you're offended by this entire concept, then this show is not, for you you well, know so you it,
0: probably left the show by the
1: time yeah, we you, got you his probably probably work. you probably walked gone. out yeah. Like, <laughs> I <don't> so know. <laughs> yeah but it is an interesting question like I think you've brought this up before in terms of like in 1991 the generate like the, the JFK assassination was a very different thing than it is for us where you know people lots of people are alive right now who obviously did not live through it but also might not even know what that mythology is what what the how much that devastated an entire country. So I I guess I can see the argument too, for the show taking a moment to actually tell people who might not know how devastating that was, how devastating that was. I I still am not a fan of it, but I just, I feel like that's a part of our collective understanding of that event.
0: I maybe I'm, I'm getting too much credit to, to people who didn't live through it, but
1: yeah, I just don't think it's necessary. And I would yeah. happily have that conversation with Mr. Sondheim himself.
0: Because I feel very, very secure in that standpoint.
1: I know, me too. I mean, I almost wish we we could bring on, like, special guest who really believes in... <laughs> Welcome this to the program, Stephen Sondheim! Sondheim. <laughs> don't, don't get excited, guys. It's not happening. He's not really He's here. He's not really He's here. He's not really <laughs> here. It's not, <laughs> oh, that's that's not, how he, that's not really how he sounds. It's that's just it, a, not like I a,
0: thought it was good, a, you know it's good, though. It's just the gravelly voice. Yeah. Um,
1: but yes, and I think the idea of like the normal, and by normal, we're just meaning the non assassins people, like what you would consider a sort of regular person who doesn't have this desire necessarily, um, is really represented in the show by the balladeer, also. Yes. I think he's our sort of voice of reason, um, which kind of leads us to our next Yeah, topic. well, I mean, because
0: I think there's this weird, um, the problems that I think are inherent within the world of the play quote-unquote i hate when people call musicals plays, but the world of the play me- with who has control over what levers of the storytelling and power in the sense that the balladeer is a bit of a narrator the proprietor is a bit of an mc type and then you have john wilkes booth who's like recruiting Lee harvey oswald into this effort and can also magically kind of conjure all of the ghosts of the assassins in that final scene I think the mixing of those rules and powers is very confusing in a way that it undermines a certain logic of the piece. Um, I think even the doubling of Lee Harvey Oswald and the Balladeer is an attempt to solve some of that and an attempt to answer some of those questions, even though I think the authors don't necessarily love that doubling. although. Again, I do feel like emotionally it is really nice to kind of think, oh, the big question mark in the back of everyone's mind is where's Lee Harvey Oswald and actually he's been here the whole time. We just didn't know it. I think that is a very successful emotional kind of reveal. Um, But I guess being the expert on the show that you are, how do you think about the relationship and the interplay of those characters with the rest of the world and the messiness that is that because I, I, really do consider it the three of them as a collective problem
1: and, mm-hmm. Um, thanks for calling me an expert. I feel like I'm just like a super fan. I like, feel like
0: you're gonna write your book about assassins, and it will complete about it. complete your your predestined your predestined role to write a fantastic theater book <laughs> as a sequel to Everything Is Possible by Theodore S. Chapin.
1: <laughs> I'll just have like a little section of my house where it's like my book about assassins next to the two framed restraining orders that's on that sometimes Weidman have <laughs> saying like, please stop talking about assassins. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is an interesting, weird part of this show. Um, I think you're right that, like, to me, the problem has always, not problem, but the, the question mark I've always had in this show, um, because I do think this is a genius work of art, a unique and genius work of art. It is literally my favorite musical for all the reasons that we talk about, like how brilliant it is, how layered. I think it's also a messy piece. I don't think it's a perfect musical in terms of like being a tidy structurally sound everything is needs to be in there and like you know I think it's a messy brilliant thing which I love a messy brilliant thing um but one of the the question marks I've always had is the proprietor especially because to me the balladeer is very clear his role is very clear and I think the proprietor feels like he's set up almost as like the devil on the shoulders as you said like, the balladeer is a little bit more the voice of reason, the kind of normal, our way in, the narrator, the proprietor is like the the dark side of it. But then nothing quite happens with the proprietor in a way that feels like it is required, you know? And I also, weirdly enough, I always kind of forget the opening number of the show is the opening number of the show. In my mind, I tend to think that, you know, the show begins with like, bring someone, tell the story like that, that it just goes into the Ballad of So it's so funny because I feel
0: completely differently. I like, really? I, I just, I, I, one, I think the opening is great, but I, I think of it as so integral. I don't know if it's because that like, what to do, come on and kill a president. I don't know if that yeah. like, just does kind of like strike something in me that like, it always sticks. I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's but. interesting. And I'm not saying I'm I'm arguing for it. I'm just saying that, like, I have a dramaturgical philosophy, which is called The Dramaturgy of Forgetting, which sounds very poetic and, like, it should be an airport novel title. But what it literally is, is that what your brain forgets is in a show probably doesn't need to be there. And that just happens with the opening number for me. And I think because also I find it a little bit shock valuey in a way that I don't find the rest of the show, like having... The like come here and kill the president. It just feels a little bit like in your face well, in the, a way that the rest of the show is not. So I think
0: the carnival aspect is also I mean, I hate it personally. I uh-huh. think it's the weird like shoot 'em, win a prize president thing. I think is really like so uninteresting. Like to me uh-huh. it trivializes the the matter that they're trying to shine a light on. Like it makes it feel uh-huh. like a, a like a shtick, or right. a, again, a little similar to what you're saying. Like it, d- not necessarily shock value, but like feels kitschy to me. Like, why don't you just yeah be bold in your approach and say like, we're gonna put all of these
1: yeah assassins
0: into this weird dark corner of a universe that we don't understand in, and like, don't know, right? A weird yeah. kind of limbo space. Like, why do we have to ground it in any kind of reality when there truly is no reality that's governing
1: Interesting. this piece? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I hate it, but I understand what you're saying. Like, I think what it does do is emphasize the idea that like this isn't about the actual presidents, you know? Sure. Um, which is a good thing. But yeah, it isn't. It, it is a very interesting choice for this particular show, especially since the sh- the rest of the show does feel like it's more. Like, I've seen it kind of in a limbo diner. It's like there's well, there's sort of like a weird place that they are, but it's not the carnival later. It doesn't feel it like. It
0: just, well, and like there's that weird bar scene where they're suddenly all at a bar. Mm-hmm. Like it, There are so many things that are like just divorced from any kind of sense yeah. that to give it any kind of yeah. realistic anchor feels forced to me, I guess, or like yeah. it feels a kind of Applied on, but but I guess the, so. To bring it back to the central question, I, yes. I feel like you. I agree that the proprietor is set up for something that is never really delivered.
1: Right. Personally,
0: I would say if you let me direct it, I think he's an MC. I think he operates the whole evening, and then when I did it, he turned into Lee Harvey Oswald, which I thought was. We can talk offline if you're really interested in my concept. Hire me to direct it and I'll do it again because I loved it. But the but I do think there is this like...
1: No, but wait. Talk more about that. Well, well finish your no. thought and then talk more
0: about that. Well, you mean... What do you mean?
1: Like talk about why you made the choice to make the proprietor... Well, like because Oswald. I felt like you need it. I felt like emotionally
0: it's right to have a reveal of Lee Harvey Oswald. I think emotionally that is right. And I, I as I said before, I think it is good for the audience to see that, oh, actually Lee Harvey Oswald has been here all along. We just didn't know it. So the way I did it was like, the proprietor was dressed in this Uncle Sam outfit and it was like, hey you, come on and kill a proprietor. Like, you know, it was very explicitly Americana type. We promise you this thing and we're going to let you deliver on it kind of thing. And so then in another national anthem, because the balladeer has all this positive lyric about how like you did all these things and they didn't work out. So why? The, to me it feels forced for him to suddenly turn on a dime and then beat Lee Harvey Oswald who's about to kill himself. It just doesn't feel true from an actor perspective to me. So we we did a, like a little mini pre-beat that was like with current news clips and the kind of carnival-like atmosphere of the 24-hour news cycle that then led into the like him the balladeer basically watching a lot of the show happen and watching the proprietor as the MC do all these like very he played all the presidents as little silhouettes you know like all these kinds of very theatrical acts basically and then in another national anthem it really became a battle of their two viewpoints Mm -hmm. and then the assassins kind of turned on the proprietor a little bit and like took away all the Uncle Sam things and then suddenly it was like he was Lee Harvey Oswald. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as if like Booth, that he had taken, like at one point Booth was the proprietor. Booth was the one that was the shining assassin, the one that we all thought about. And by what Lee Harvey Oswald doing, what he did, he took that mantle from John Wilkes Booth. Mm -hmm. And so now he is kind of the, the dominant assassin, or, or the do, you know yeah. the dominant leader of the group, basically is like how we played it. But I, I don't know if that makes sense. Does that track? Is it? Yeah, did I, say, I, did I, I explain think explain that, that well.
1: I think that tracks. I mean, I think it's very interesting the idea of having the proprietor turn into Oswald. So you are not a fan of the balladier into Oswald? No, I'm not. Thing.
0: I'm not. I think it's. It doesn't. It. I, I. While it is emotionally satisfying, I don't think
1: that it makes sense. So. I I disagree with you there. Although I think that the proprietor arc, and I think this speaks to the brilliance of the show, that like, that is an interesting way to interpret it. And I think that, you know, there are so many very ways that that could go. To me, I like, I love the balladeer turning into Oswald. To me, it kind of completes the show in a very dark way, but a very powerful way. Um, Because to me, I... and, and just to give a little history about this particular thing, this was also not something that happened in the original production. Yeah,
0: it, Joe yeah. Antello's revival is really the first that's yeah. credited with having done this. I There may have been other productions that did it, but that is that right. is kind of the one that goes down as being the famous.
1: Yes, yeah. yeah. And they said, they the creators, Wybin and Sondheim, have specifically said that they didn't do it originally. It wasn't even on their mind because they, they didn't want it to have too much meaning. Um, or seem like it had too much meaning, which I think now I've kind of gotten used to it with that meaning. So, but I for, think there, I mean I think
0: everyone has.
1: Because, I mean, a lot of people have. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because to me, what it says is, um, it it kind of completes that arc of like these are not separate people. This is this is something that could be anyone. You know, any one of us could be, could have this potential in us because we are all subject to the same. Argument. I mean, when you get to na- another national anthem, like, it, it's pretty devastating to, to hear Bick especially lead the four-way about, like, this doesn't, it's not going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. These these stupid, lo- and the, the balladeer is like, oh, but the mailman won the lottery is like, feels like increasingly weak, increasingly weak, increasingly weak. So I would argue that it actually is in the text pretty easily for him to be kind of overpowered by the, the arguments that they're making there. Um, but I also have a thing about, like, I find it totally fascinating the way that Sondheim and his collaborators, because this isn't only a Weidman thing, although it also happens in Pacific Overtures, um, the way that narrator characters operate in Sondheim shows. And I'm going to go down a slight rabbit hole. I wrote my grad school thesis on this topic. So this is a, a very, if, I, if you ever want to hear me talk about narrators and Sondheim shows, <laughs> then come on down. But in brief, basically like, In Pacific Overtures, in Assassins, if you make this choice, and in Into the Woods, all three of them have narrator characters who basically get kind of cannibalized into the text. Um, And I think that that is doing such an interesting, dramatic thing because the presence of a narrator in a show makes you inherently comfortable. Because it is a person who is speaking directly to you. It is a person who has sort of a magical knowledge of everything that happens. So they know how it's going to end. They are there sort of outside of this narrative. So it's sort of safely contained. And they stand kind of between you and the narrative. Because they are telling you the story. So you're not kind of just experiencing the story. Um, When you take that narrator character and have them get basically sucked into the text or like into the woods. Obviously the narrator gets kind of turned on by the characters who are like, what are you doing here? Why do you, why can you be here? And then killed by the giant in Pacific overtures. It's the reciter who ends up becoming the emperor. Who's the person who's like, no, let's open up Japan. Um, and obviously in assassins, if you make this choice, the balladeer becomes Oswald. So your voice of reason becomes the one who is like the worst of all of them, who legitimizes all of them. Um, and not to go back to Brecht, but that, to me, it's like you have ripped away the person who is giving you this comfort as an audience member who is defining your relationship to the text. And so now as an audience member, you are left like your your the ground has been ripped out from under you. Not only do you not have this voice there to guide you to be the kind of safety you have to engage with the narrative in front of you with nothing in between you. You have to determine your relationship to it. So when you make the balladier into Oswald, to me this is like all of these things working at the same time. Because you now have to engage with this narrative on your own. And you've watched this character who has been the person who is like, this is not normal. Like, booth, you changed the perception of Lincoln. Like sometimes he's taking on the voice of these these um assassins as he's singing for them but he's never turned by them until you get to this end, and it, I think it just brings it up a level with the idea that like now that, that there is something here that is real and true that is not so far from you um that now you have to grapple with
0: well and I think what and at least <clears throat> in my conception of it so when the proprietor became became Lee Harvey Oswald, then the balladeer watched that entire scene. And was, yeah. It was as if they were reenacting this scene to further convince the balladeer that their point of view was right, that something is wrong and that he uh-huh. should take this further action. So then that 11 o'clock number has a little bit more of a, I guess, super purpose beyond the actual internal dramatic purpose. And then that last, everything, everybody's got the right, like they handed him a gun and you know wanted him to like take action basically. So... Attempting to delay that kind yeah. of reaction just a little bit longer, mm-hmm. so that it was actually the reaction that you were left with as you left, thinking and asking those questions. Ultimately, at least in my hope, leaving the audience asking the questions that the piece is asking, and asking it about themselves too. In this incre- in this increasingly divisive, or in this, at this time in the world with an incredibly divided, divisive politics, yeah, and universe how do i relate to that as an individual person and have i wished ill upon people that i disagree with because of like you know yeah, I yeah, kind yeah. of mm-hmm. to, for me that was because i agree in the sense that like i that it, by cannibalizing the narrator you are doing that on a certain level i think i just it from an acting perspective it feels a little bit applied to it not it, it, to me it came uh, it, to me I understand what you're saying that it's in the text because you're right it is in the text that he could he's dwarfed by the argument of the assassins in that number it just seems like an inactive choice to me
1: from an acting perspective I mean I you, guess
0: is that but I, anyway that's No, but a lot yeah. of people agree with you yeah
1: you know I mean I, I think the arguments against it are like what Sondheim and Weidman themselves have said which is like it does it's a it's a big statement to say that this your voice of reason is also turned that like you're left without anybody um that's huge um it's also you know you could make the argument too that like as much as i think that there is in another national anthem he's he really is pushed out of that song whether you think he's just pushed out of the show or sure. he's being like convinced that's an argument you know but then the last scene is also Oswald being convinced so you could say that too that you have this like you've already you've already had this character pushed to is this other side beat? you need yeah. a repeated beat you know etc so I think there's I mean this is why partially I love this show is because I think all of these are interesting ways to go and and this show has so many themes in it and so many points to make and so many it's operating on so many levels that I think any one of these choices is going to simply highlight one or another of these themes leave you with something to think about in terms of America, um, in terms of our obsession with fame, in terms of, you know, a moral center, a logic, etc. Like all of those things are in here. And so you could have a very different show based on how these choices are made. And I think it's really interesting to think of the proprietor that way because it would kind of give him a purpose that he doesn't, currently feel like it totally has in the right show. it's
0: totally yeah. not in right the text. He's really just textually supposed to appear in those like three spaces. Yeah he just has all those little which moments. is so
1: odd. I know it's interesting. It's very,
0: very odd. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. Even as an audience member because I when I saw the the menier production, I remember being like, well why isn't he doing more? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he's here and there. It's like, oh it does feel like this unanswered right. question.
1: Well, yeah. I also like there's something just fundamentally sort of odd to me about the idea like if you think that the show is kind of about these people who are angry and frustrated and have legitimate der- grievances on a on a on a range some of them do sort of some of them definitely don't um then to have a kind of like negative antagonist like a catalyst in there I'm a little bit like oh that's kind of interesting because it doesn't feel like each of these individual stories requires that necessarily. You know, it's not like you're seeing normal people. And then at a certain point, someone's like poke, poke. And it's like, Oh, now, you know, in the way that like mm-hmm. you do see that something, it's not a Faustian bargain. Really. Right. Right. Um, and so to have a, a kind of negative character who's there, who's just like giving them the gun. I mean, I guess they're sort of in essence, setting up a Faustian bargain, like from the beginning, like something is activated just by the very presence of having, the proprietor in the beginning, I guess you could say, but to me, it sort of it, it doesn't quite feel necessary. And then I, I think the arguments that Bic makes in another national anthem and before in his monologues are actually stronger. you know, Like I, I think the build of getting to the point where it's like all of these things come together in that brilliant last scene, I think it's all there. I don't think you really necessarily need another outside force. So. Well, and we
0: could 100 percent we could do a mini podcast series that's just us unpacking every single element and person in oh Assassin's God. Like I, honestly. Yeah. May, I, I, another podcast idea. But truly, like it's a fascinating piece. And then will bring us to our newest segment, We Go Together.
2: We go together like grandma, mama, mama,
0: Where we talk about a show or shows that we think are most closely related to Assassins. So, Assassins is obviously a very specific individual thing. I, I'm going to, and I struggled with this for this show, but I think the show this most closely resembles is Chorus Line.
1: Interesting. I was going to go with the same
0: one. Um, because, Yeah, well, because it's like, it is asking a lot bigger questions than are blatantly, like, like, Chorus Line is about much more than just, like, these dancers getting a job, in the same way that Assassins is about a lot much more than just killing their individual president or whatnot and it is asking questions about the american dream and the promise of everything and and all that but it also they're all it's a very individual character piece um that they're like character explorations as much as they are and there's more character exploration than there is like plot i guess I, and I don't know that Assassins, I don't know that we could say Assassins has, like, a superstructure in the same way that Chorus Line
1: does. Yeah, not really. It's
0: it's a much more of a, here's a bit of this, here's a bit of that. Mm-hmm. Like, mod podge buffet, menu type um, of the various genres and, and uh, emotions and, and feelings that it evokes. Um but yeah, what other what other show do you think kind of lives in the universe that we wouldn't necessarily tie to it? Because I feel like Company also has a little bit. Yeah. But like, I hate to answer shows that are written by the same, same people because yeah. like, it's not it's a cheat around. But what yeah. what are what are some other shows that you think kind of live adjacent to this?
1: Well, it's it is a really interesting question because it is such a unique show. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine it being kind of duplicated in the way that other shows we've talked about ended up. Leaving their mark in in a very distinct way on on structural shows that followed. But the show that I think is is not structurally similar, certainly. But I think I would love to see them in Rep because I think they are talking about a lot of the same things in a really interesting way, which is seventeen seventy six.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. Continue, continue. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um. Basically I think I mean obviously these are both shows about America. I
0: was gonna say it seems obvious, seems but actually obvious. it's not obvious No, and it's not only
1: because of that, but I think both of these shows are really diving into the notion of America. Not just that America is their topic. It's it's about I think the messy realness behind what we call this thing that is a concept really this, I mean, it's a country, but like, what is it actually? What, what is the promise of it? And 1776 is a brilliant show because I think it deals with all of these, these just personalities and you know, the deals that you have to make and, and the people that nobody like you know, like the, the little messy stuff that goes into this huge and sort of noble undertaking. And I think Assassins is kind of the flip side of that. It takes the huge noble undertaking and looks at the messy people that are coming out the other side of it. So they're not similar necessarily, but they are in conversation with the same ideas. And that, I think, is very interesting. I mean, I think there's a reason that 1776 is such an engaging show. You know, it's funny because it could be really boring because everybody knows the ending.
0: Yeah, everyone. (laughs)
1: Yeah, everyone. I mean... you. But you you sit in 1776 and you're like, oh my God, are they going to make it? You know, you really are. By the end of that show, you're just like, oh.
0: How are they going to make it? How are they going to make it?
1: And then you're left with this sort of like magnitude of like, oh crap, what comes next? You know, what do you do now? And I think similarly, Assassins is a little bit like, in some ways it's the opposite. It's like. 1776 does sort of have a superstructure because you're ending towards the end. Assassins, you don't really know where you're going, but it's that same sort of like, what do we do now, you know? So 1776, I would say, please do that in rep. That would be amazing. Well, it's
0: fascinating for a producing standpoint too because they're such actor-driven pieces that, yeah. that are you really good. And they both have in their principal roles only two ladies. Which only two definitely ladies. definitely um Definitely, uh, there's some interesting they're parallels so in, in that category too, but yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that will bring us to our favorite things.
2: These are a few of my favorite things.
0: Where we talk about some of our favorite things about assassins. So Annika, what is your favorite song in assassins?
1: It's hard.
0: (laughs) Someday we're going to be able to do the segment and you're not going to answer that question with, oh, it's so hard. Also, I just snorted like I did a line of coke off the table. (laughs) I don't do coke. I I do not do cocaine. Um, What is your favorite song in the thousands, Annika?
1: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Mentally, I had to divide this category into subcategory of which song either because there are songs that I'm like oh my god dramatically what the song achieves is like amazing top level I mean that's all songs in this show pretty much but like there are some that are like whoa um versus like songs that are just jams that I like to listen to on repeat so I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like the question is for part two and I'm gonna say uh Cholgash I
0: was going to say the same thing. I love it. It's, I love to try to sing along. I love singing along. Not trying to sing along. I yeah. do sing along with it in the car. But I love to try to get all the rhythms right and all the lists. And I think it's a great
1: song. It's a great song. It's a great song. And it just makes me want to hear more music like that.
0: <laughs> I wish that it were tracked on the original album to be its own song as a, instead of a part of the gun song because I always have to fast forward through the gun song to get to Oh, Troll yeah. Bash. Good point. Annoying. Yeah. Looking at you. RCA Victor.
1: Yes, but but thank you for putting that last scene on there. That was a bold choice. Yes,
0: also I'm pretty sure I I assume Bill was one of the producers at that point. So thanks, Billy, for helping <laughs> me that not happen. Um listener of a friend, a friend of the program, Billy Rosefield. Um uh who's your favorite character in Assassins? know. Okay, that's fascinating. Why?
1: Yeah. Um Because...
0: He's deeply confusing to me. I mean, I like him a lot, but he's deeply confusing.
1: Oh, but that's partly why I love him. Okay,
0: great. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) I just
1: love him because, first of all, he's so charming um, and so fun. And I think, I mean, I think they they have fun with him partially because he is the assassin. Like, in real life, he he is kind of the craziest. He actually is. Yeah. Yeah. His reasons for it are just not, I mean, he was, he wanted to be ambassador to France. He wrote this like book. He was angry about that. I mean, he was, well, parts of his
0: song are legitimately like things he said on the gallows, Like, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, but I find that like part of what I love about the show and I just love in general is the contrast of comedy and darkness and, I feel like this show does that so brilliantly obviously but but a lot of that is sort of centered in Gateau. You just have such a great time whenever he's on stage. I think he articulates really interesting things about like being a president, you know. Well, I could be president. Like it's a wonderful institution like it's all and it's just a feast for the actor. I mean Jonathan Nadari originally Dennis O'Hare in the revival like it, it just can so easily be Become just the person that you you want to be talking to, and then when he switches to this dark side, it's legitimately terrifying. Partially because he's been so light, um, so oh, I just love him, and I think also like a whole other thread in this show that we haven't even talked to talked about is like there's a really interesting toxic masculinity thing that they they touch on mm-hmm. a little bit, and I think that's also very interesting in Gato, and when he's sort of flirting with Sarah Jane Moore, especially, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there's just a lot of really interesting stuff located in Gato, but mostly just because he's really fun.
0: I mean, it's fair. I think my answer is Sarah Jane Moore. I think because I enjoy the SNL kind of quality that mm-hmm. that those those scenes have, um, and the shooting of the gun and the like. She's you know, so sh- funny. <laughs> sh- Shot it like it's funny. Like I I find her genuinely entertaining, but it's hard to pick one because like. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I have to, but I think I have to pick her because I think she's the most Yeah, I think she's my favorite. Yeah. But it's hard. I uh, on a different day I could probably pick a different one.
1: Yeah, and this is a show. I mean, you've said it before, this is a very actor driven show and like I've seen a lot of productions of Assassins because I pretty much will see whatever production of Assassins I can ever see. And it really is dependent on who your cast is. Uh, you know, I've I've seen shows that where squeaky from is the one that you're like paying attention to, which I thought would never happen because that's that's not my favorite character, you know? it's So depending on who you get Talk and about who's in odd, there, by
0: the way, and curious. Like, infinitely compelling in, like, weird ways. I mean, squeaky.
1: fascinating. They're also fascinating. Yeah. So, so yeah, so there really could be any, any one of these characters.
0: So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about assassins?
1: Well, I mean, this is obviously a show that has many moments I could choose. I mean, the whole last scene is brilliant. There's so many... Parts of it I love. I love the moment where Gato points the gun at the audience, which really makes a great point about uh, what guns are and it's just so viscerally terrifying. Um, but one of the things that I really love about this show, and, and I've always intended to do this and go through and actually count the number of times that the word connect appears in the show, it, because it's a lot. And I feel like at the same time as the show has this very dark message about frustrations and the failure of the American dream and, and people who are not allowed to succeed when we're, when they're being told that, you know, it's really up to them to just make it happen. There's this other message that is woven through this show, which is about connection. And this is a massive theme in Sondheim's work in general, but, um, you have to connect, connect with the people around you, connect, and obviously that has a darker meaning in this show because the assassins do connect and become this kind of alternate community. Um, you have to connect to what's happening in the world. You have to connect to the people who are there that you might not even see. And I think that that's kind of a weirdly hopeful little message in it that's never made explicit in this show, but is there just in, in the number of times that you get that word. Um, that ultimately we are not alone necessarily that that community is something that is important, that when a human being becomes this becomes a person alone, um, these dark things can happen. And again, this is not explicitly said in this show necessarily, because obviously, um, the community that forms is, can also take on a dark cast. But I think that there's something really beautiful about having that sort of subliminal message be in there just like, connect to people, connect to what is good and connect to what is around us, even if it isn't good to be aware of it. And I love that message. And I love that that is just in there so many times.
0: Well, it's also, as you said, it's throughout his entire body of work. And it his really inside, is. It's like that, if there's a unifying theme to his work, it would be that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think my favorite, um, other than the production that I did and shout out to my kiddos, who I love and we had a great time doing it. But uh, I think uh my favorite has to be in that last scene when they've all like all the ghosts have reappeared or the aberrations, whatever you want to call them, and they've all said their names and they, you know, we're gonna kill and whatnot. And um Victor Garber so good on that original recording driving that scene and like like a rallying cry, like why do these rednecks so always have these throw those three three names like uh, James Earl Ray John is it James Earl Ray John Wilkes Booth is that who he says anyway he goes on the list of three names of the various people and then yeah. like this small I don't know who the original actor who played Lee Harvey Oswald was but Jace Alexander oh sure um not Jason not to be not confused. Jason not to be confused Jason Alexander this is Jace Alexander yeah. um uh but like in this very small and like Pip squeaky, sad, strange... I know this is very judgmental language, but sad, strange little man, like, pipes up and says, like, Lee Harvey Oswald. Like, as if he is imagining himself as among them and, like, that he's, like, taken his rightful place almost, even though, like, the way he says it is so undeserving of that place in such an interesting way. And that, like, that, that... that combination is like so compelling and fascinating to me. It gives me chills thinking about it. Like it's it, it, cause it's just the right combination of all of the, it's, it's harrowing and like grotesque yeah. in the most interesting way. And I, I think that is, it's one of the many things that I am so drawn to about this show.
1: Yeah. I mean that whole last scene, I think another line there is attention has been paid and just the the uh, moment where your stomach just drops out realizing that what Booth, what Booth is saying is is true.
0: Well and even I mean, yeah, I would say the second runner up it to, in that same beat is yeah. the is the no, they were assassinated. Uh-huh. Like Ah It's yeah. like it show it's like, oh yeah, it's yeah. different. Right. It is different. And like that that and it's I think the first time in the entire well no, it's not the first time in the entire time they've used the word assassin or assassinated. No, I don't think so. It's that. not. But it feels like it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, oh my God. But, you know, it's like that terrible, yeah, yeah. that terrible game. Like, ooh, ah, the title of the show. Yeah. It's. It feels like the first time they've said it. It feels like the fir- it's, it's it has such weight and such yeah. meaning in that moment. And it, it feels like a release almost.
1: Yeah. It's, that last scene is, is really brilliant. I think you, I mean, it really did teach me what theater could do. That scene, listening to that scene over and over. Thank you for, again for putting it on the album, um because you really do follow the argument, and it's an argument that you would have thought before you never would have understood. And it just is—it's so chilling, and it's so darkly logical, and it's just so brilliant. Yay, John Weidman!
0: And that will bring us to one of our last segments, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find- The sky. where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon so I think uh assassins as we've talked about in we've talked around this I think the entire show if we haven't explicitly said it but it is such an oddity in the musical theater canon in the same way that these characters are an oddity kind of of the American experience except that they're not um I think what this show occupies is a very niche and individual place of the the things that musical theater can explore and the how dark of topics can be dealt with and, and debated and explored using this form and in, an, in a very small, intimate, off-Broadway way. Like, it will only grow with meaning over time. It really, truly, to me, I, I don't know yeah. that there will ever be a time where it has lost its meaning or lost like I think it will just continue to grow in stature over time and I feel like yeah. even the first like 30 years of its exi- its existence it's already kind of yeah become stepped into its own I'd I say like before its time or whatever because that's not necessarily true but like it's it it is so individual I don't it is I think and that is kind of its place it's like I can't think as much as we do the segment that's like what other shows are like it there isn't really another show like assassins no, not, it just is not really. so so individual so but Annika, what would you say is its place
1: yeah i mean i think it certainly opened the door like i think it certainly makes the point that musicals can attack subjects that you would never think of i mean i feel like assassins is a show that sometimes i hear a lot of people kind of people who don't know musicals assume that all musicals are kind of dumb and light. And this is always a show that I bring up eventually of like, this is the show that has taught me more about America and how to think about America of all pieces of art, full stop. This is the show that has taught me how to think about America more than any other. Um, It is a wild topic for a musical to attack and I'm so glad they did because it just proves that musicals can, can dive into every single topic that it is not a special category of thing that has to stay in a certain area of lightness or um, silliness or anything that obviously we already know this who are musical theater fans, but I think that certainly. um, And I, I mean, I just keep going back to like, yeah, it's totally unique and it gives the message that like, Shows can be these unique things attack, attacking these different topics. But also, I, I do think it is ahead of its time. I think it is something that, um, you know, we are in a place right now where America, which is constantly changing as an idea anyway, but like we are in, an, in a place where the concept of what America is is something, a discussion we're more willing to have, I think, these days, because what America is, is a little bit less of a sacred thing you know, we're in a messy place. I think this is a show that really um, makes us think about things that perhaps people were not so willing to think about at the time. And I'm just really glad it exists also. Cause I mean, God knows I would not be the theater nerd that I am without this show. I think I love musicals, but this show really truly taught me what drama could do. And so for that, I owe it a personal thank you.
0: Well, that will conclude our deep dive into assassins. Um, But before we go, Anika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So Anika, what is our next clue for what show we will be putting in the spotlight?
1: Well, our next show used over 300 pounds of yak hair in its original production.
0: That is not the clue i was expecting at
1: all (laughs) i feel like we haven't done a clue like that in a while you know
0: no it's great i mean i i know what the show is so that's uh, really fun i don't know that i would guess i I don't know if i would guess it's a good clue it's a good clue
1: it is a good clue spoiler
0: alert it's 70 Girls 70 that's that's the show that's the one
1: (laughs) (laughs) the black crook
0: oh Womp, womp.
1: <laughs> what <laughs> every good joke should harken back to musical theaters OG. Oh,
0: i'll take things that make me want to take a nap for 200 alex <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll see you next time bye everyone
1: bye everyone
0: This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Bury Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmony Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit Goodspeed.org. See you next time!